0: Taking the Middle Seat, a podcast where we explore connection, where you might not think it exists. I'm your host, Andrea. I'm a therapist and connector living in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've always believed that one of the most important things we can do as a human is sit next to someone and really take in their story. So every couple of weeks or so, I'm taking the middle seat right here on this podcast. I listen to someone tell their story because I know that the middle seat holds healing and connection, and community if we stay open and remember that we belong to each other. I hope you listen into each and every episode and that you'll find yourself moving in to hear the magic in the middle seat. On this episode, episode 43, I'm talking to Rachel Pia Jones. She is a writer and she is incredible, you guys. Right off the top, I want to tell you that we talk about her new book that is releasing October 1st is called Stronger Than Death, which is a book about the life and death of a woman named Annalena Tonelli. I'm gonna read a little bit of the description of the book. It says, I am nobody, Annalena always insisted. Yet by the time she was killed for her work three decades later, she had not only developed an effective cure for tuberculosis among nomadic peoples, but also exposed a massacre, established homes and schools for the deaf, advocated against female genital mutilation, and secured treatment for ostracized AIDS patients. Whew, that is a jam-packed book, and it sounds fascinating. I am so excited to pre-order it. I would love for you to do that, too. You can also win a copy of the book. See the show notes to get those details. That offer goes only until September 22nd, so go right now, right this minute. Another thing I want you to know is that Rachel lives in Djibouti, which is a small country in the Horn of Africa. We talked via the magic of the interwebs, of course. She has lived abroad with her family since 2003, and as you may imagine, she has so many stories and lessons learned from that very unique experience. Rachel talks about living cross-culturally and cross-spiritually. She talks about raising second-culture kids, and she wrote a book about that as well. She talks about creating community as an expat and maintaining curiosity and intention. I could have talked to her for hours. I want to talk to her all the time. Every time I see a new post from her on social media, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I could just call her and talk more. You will love every second of our talk, I promise. I link to all of Rachel's articles, books, and her newsletter in the show notes, And I know you are maybe hesitant to sign up for a newsletter because some of them are just kind of wordy nonsense, but not this one, you guys. Rachel calls it Stories from the Horn. It is rich with wisdom and perspective. I love it. So go sign up for that as well. I also put a couple of resources in the show notes that we didn't talk about, but I feel like are great companions to our talk. So check those out too. There's so much to check out in the show notes this time, you guys. Whew. So go enter that contest, buy the book, you might as well have two copies, get a free one and buy the book, and get comfy because here is my interview with Rachel Pia Jones. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am so excited for our conversation. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So you had reached out to me and I just felt like it was like a little gift because I started looking at your Bio and some of your writings and your website, and I was like, Oh, absolutely, yes, please come on my podcast. You're amazing. Um, So, I'm just excited to talk about 112 things. I feel like we could probably talk for four hours. (laughs) Yeah, probably that would be really fun. I'd love it. It would be. (laughs) People would tune out, but that doesn't matter. We could keep talking. (laughs) Um, So, let's start with saying a little bit about you, Um, what Back of the woods you live in. That's important. Um, Your family, kind of whatever you want to start with introduction-wise.
1: Sure. So my family right now, we live in Djibouti. And uh, one of the first questions we often get when I say that is, what the heck is a Djibouti?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit, I had to Google. I had to look at the map. I had to absolutely find it.
1: -hmm. Yep, and people can't usually spell it because it starts with a D, but you pronounce it with a J sound. So it's confusing. Yes. Um, So Djibouti is a country, and the city, the capital city, is Djibouti. So we live in Djibouti, Djibouti, which is awesome. Got it. And um, it's a small country in the Horn of Africa, bordered by Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and then it kind of opens up onto the Red Sea. And so we're right across the water from Yemen. Um, and we have been here since 2004. In 2003, we first moved to the Horn of Africa to Somalia. Um, and originally I'm from Minnesota. So that's kind of moving backwards in time, I guess. But, okay. Uh, yeah, we have three kids, um, 18 year old twins that are now back in the United States at university. Oh. And a 13 year old daughter. And my husband, the reason we're here is because initially he was a professor both in Somalia and then here in Djibouti. And then now for the last three years, we've run an international American school.
0: Okay. Oh my goodness. So when back in, I guess, 2002, life before 2000, (laughs) before your, your move, were you thinking gosh you know what i'd like to do is go on an adventure and live in an african country or what how did this all start have you been an adventure seeking person <laughs> you know <laughs>
1: Uh, you might think so, but I do not consider myself an adventure-seeking person. I married an adventure-seeking person. Got it. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, his name is Tom Jones, and he, we joke that we take the Jones part really seriously, as in Indiana Jones,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> and
1: um, all about exploring and seeing the world and having adventures um, to the point that actually on the flight, our first flight to Africa when we were moving to Somalia. We had all our bags packed, and at the airport, I surprised him with a gift, and it was an Indiana Jones hat. Ah, I love it. Um, so, yeah, in 2002, I did not think, boy, what I really would like to do is move to Somalia with
0: two-year-old twins. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. That sounds terrifying.
1: Yeah, but I did think that I wanted to, um, I wanted to be involved cross-culturally. I wanted to experience what it would be like to live in a place where um, I just was challenged and pushed beyond my comfort level, beyond my comfort zone. I spent my whole life in Minnesota. I grew up in the Baptist church in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. And so I knew obviously living in Somalia, my neighbors would all be Muslim. And um, I just was really curious. Uh, I wanted to know what life would be like someplace else. And then we wanted to be of service someplace. Mm-hmm. We felt like we had been given so much in terms of education and. Um, Just coming from middle-class families, we really wanted to be useful in the world. And so in 2002, we were living in um, these high-rise apartments in Minneapolis that were full of Somali refugees. Mm -hmm. And we started to hear about the northern region of Somalia, which was peaceful. And it was kind of a breakaway republic. It's officially still Somalia, but they have maintained peace for a long time on their own. And um through connections, through some Somali friends, my husband was offered a job teaching at the university up here in the north where it was peaceful. So we it's not like we were moving into, you know, anarchy and the Civil War in the south. Mm-hmm. And because we've been invited by the local community um, to meet a need that they really felt like at that time only um, an American-educated Native English speaker could meet, Mm -hmm. we felt like this is something that we could do and feel really good about and uh, eventually after all these years in the Horn of Africa um, the English departments in which my husband has worked have become developed enough that local people have been able to take over the position that he used to fill which is perfect that's what we wanted yeah Um, he developed the some classes and some trainings and all these things and then yeah so that's kind of a I think I'm yeah. Circling here, but yes, that's how we got here.
0: Okay. And I feel like back in that time frame, like 2003, 2004, there wasn't a ton of, um, realization about how maybe, uh, white Western people shouldn't arrive in Africa and just spread our, our wonderfulness. Um, <laughs> that, that, there has been slowly but surely more awareness about how that is harmful and not maybe the way to go about things. Did, how did that come on your and your husband's radar that being invited was a really important thing and the goal is to hand this over to the very capable local people. Do you, did you have experiences before you left or interaction with people that made that, that awareness um, come true for you and your husband?
1: That is a really good question because yeah, you're right. Like now it's so much a part of how we talk in the conversation about development and aid, but yeah, at the time it wasn't very common. Um, we did have in our minds kind of a phrase of wanting to work ourselves out of a job. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not exactly sure we, where that would have come from, mm-hmm. but um, we knew that we wanted to go someplace in the world where there is a need um, but yeah, that we could meet it in such a way that the local people would eventually be able to take over, yeah. um, where we wouldn't be staying, you know, forever doing the same thing always, uh, whether it's providing food or education or healthcare, but really training up people. And it maybe it came from, um, my husband's heart is really as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So he loves watching people, um, learn and then be able to implement what they do. And we both had a lot of input, both spiritually and then academically, um, from other people, mentors who helped us do that, who were, like, who were modeling um, input into us in such a way that we would then be able to input into someone else and then step away from that, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. So it was part of our spiritual upbringing and our academic upbringing to not always be the one at the front, but to be helping other people to rise up.
0: I love that. Well, you were built in the right way, it sounds like, to do the work in such a way that you're doing it now. Um, So when you were getting ready to leave, I assume you had people around you that were like, yes, this sounds amazing. (laughs) And other people that were like, what in the world are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the concerns that you were hearing, the voices that you were hearing, um, either maybe your own doubts or others other around you, people, you know, what were those concerns going into this life of living abroad?
1: Definitely safety was one, even though yeah. we knew the North was peaceful, there was still a recent history and a close by geographical reality of violence and danger. So that was... A really big concern, and then we were going to be really far from any kind of medical, quality medical um, resources, so that was a concern. Yeah. Um, and then spiritually being isolated, kind of in a sense, at yeah. the time, um, that was how we viewed it—that we would be isolated as Christians. And so there was a lot of fear. You know, it was just two years after nine eleven was when okay. we went. And so there was still a lot of talk at that time about, um, you know, the danger of Islam or uh, the call to prayer might be, which is the Muslims pray five times a day. So the call to prayer comes from mosques all over the cities um, and it's calling them to pray. And so some Christians would say that was a call to something dangerous or, or evil in some way. And, and now I look back and I think, well, that's, It's just so not what we've experienced, but that was a fear that we would be putting ourselves kind of in a spiritually risky situation. Yeah. And now I think I'm not isolated at all. (laughs) I live in a place where faith is very much a part of people's lives in a way even different than in the U S my friends here pray five times a day because they respond to that prayer. And it's a, a beautiful call and a beautiful reminder five times to Think about God and to turn your heart towards uh, eternal reality. So I look back at those kinds of fears and they they seem almost laughable and yet they're very real. I think they're even still prevalent in the U.S. and in other um, other places kind of a fear because it's unknown. Islam is unknown for a lot of people. And now it's my it's my the air I breathe. It's the world. It's Ramadan right now. It's the fasting month of Ramadan and so it's very much a part of our daily life and not something to be afraid of.
0: Yeah. I mean, isn't it wonderful when we get close enough to another person or another culture that those fears just fall away. I just, this is absolutely you're singing my song. I love this so <laughs> much. Um, so you talk a lot about living um, in your work, living cross culturally, living cross spiritually. And I, how, what are some of those kind of major lessons? I mean, there's probably hundreds of lessons that you've learned living in this way for so long, but what are some of the, maybe the favorite things to tell people about that don't live, um, cross-culturally or cross beard although I would, I guess I would argue that we all do. We just have to be more aware mm-hmm. about it. Um. Mm-hmm what are some of the favorite things that you've learned about yourself or the way that you move throughout the world in, in these past years? Hmm.
1: I think one thing that's been interesting is that idea of something that we don't know. Our first inclination or response to it would be fear. Yeah. Either, Either fear or a negative response. Like if someone, if we're in a place where we don't speak the language and we hear someone talking about us, our natural assumption is often that they're speaking negatively about us. Insulting us or threatening us. Often they're not even talking about us, (laughs) you know. um, But I think our I've learned that my mindset initially is to go to that place of negativity and fear in my assumptions about the other person. And and then just learning that that's not true. Um, People are, maybe they are looking at us uh, maybe they're curious, maybe they're interested, maybe they're trying to open up some kind of conversation. So and that, one of the clearest ways I experienced that was on a, in my early days in Somalia, I was walking to the market with my housekeeper who spoke a little English. So before I learned Somali, she and I could communicate a little bit. And I felt these stones hit the back of my legs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, someone's throwing rocks at me. And so we turned around and looked behind us, and there was these kids in the doorway of a house behind, and they were just waving and waving, trying to say hello to the foreigner. They'd never seen you know, a uh-huh. foreigner before in this little village. And so initially, what I would have interpreted as, I'm getting stoned here. Yes. <laughs> these people don't want me, was actually little kids just trying to say hello. Um, uh. So that's been a huge lesson, is just to really question my initial assumptions when they're negative and to assume the best of the other person.
0: Yes. I love that. That's, um, assume good intentions. I love mm-hmm. that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what is community like in Djibouti or in your particular, you know, smaller area of Djibouti? Do you have primarily, you know, American expat type of community or what is that like in your daily life? How do you form community?
1: It has really ebbed and flowed over the years, depending on where we've lived and then specifically what work I've done. So currently, because we're working at this international school that we founded, a lot of my community is with other expat families, Mm -hmm. whether they're American or French or Korean or, um, Bolivian, it's just a variety of people, the parents at our school, because my role at the school is to do a lot of the um, social planning and the liaison between the teachers and the parents. So that's been a little bit different because that's for the last three years. But And I still have some you know, Djiboutian involvement with the locals, but it's been a little bit less. Um, in the past, I had helped to start a girls running club and so I spent a lot of time with those girls and the coaches who are Djiboutian, and I still help out there.
0: Uh huh. Um,
1: and I've taught English with a local women's um, development organization, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's just really depended, um, and our community is formed like a. You know, I I can't speak to what it's like in the U.S. because we've been away for so long. Yeah. But here, the pace of life is slower. Yeah. And we're really able to do a lot of face-to-face connecting with people. It's a small town, and so you run into people that you know. I've shopped at the same stores for 15 years, and so I know the cashiers and I know the gas station attendants. And so community is just kind of formed by living our life. Yeah. Um, you know, I go for a lot of walks with other expats or local women. Um, so I really love that about being here and that our community is very much – Physical and present.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because people probably aren't staring at their phone every second. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Um, Do you get to the United States very often?
1: Yeah, we usually get there once a year in the
0: summertime. And does it feel... What does it feel like to come back to the United States?
1: It can feel... Sometimes like coming home in some ways for my husband and I, we both are from Minnesota to our kids though. Africa is home. Yeah. This is where they've spent their whole life. Um, But all it it feels often initially super overwhelming. There's so much input. Even when you land at the airport, there's just shopping and buying and food and, and we understand all the language that's happening. So you're taking in a lot more Then you know, if if we land, for example, at a layover in the Turkish airport and we don't understand, your mind can just block that out. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's in English. It just kind of comes at us. And we often spend the first couple of days in kind of a hazy fog trying to figure out, get our feet back on the ground. And one thing that amazes me, if we are there for more than a month, just how quickly we get sucked into consumerism. Yes. And I just feel this pressure to buy stuff and to go shopping. And and then I feel like, what did I, I don't need to go shopping. I don't need this stuff. You know, I haven't <laughs> been shopping for a whole year. What do I need to go now for? But that is something that really hits us hard when we get back. Um, and for my kids too now, they're trying to figure out uh, how to navigate that because it's such a part of American culture.
0: Yeah. Isn't it interesting? I mean, someone like you that's so conscious of being intentional and that kind of stuff, it can just seep in without mm-hmm. us wanting it to necessarily or, um, gosh, that's so interesting that you're like, well, I'm in, an, while I'm in the United States, I should probably pick up these 12 things that are right, right. for me. Yes. Oh, how interesting. How are your um, college age kids Finding university, since they, that's, you know, being in the United States is not home for them. Are they like, this is amazing, or this is just another new thing, or what, how do they navigate that?
1: I think it's a little of both, and also yeah. hard sometimes. So they've been, they've both mentioned that the U.S. feels very political. Everything yeah. feels political, from what you eat to what you wear to, you know, whether or not you go to church, everything almost feels political. And that's overwhelming for them because they've heard all the things happening, you know, with social media. Yeah. They haven't been totally isolated, but they haven't been in it or experiencing it. Yeah. So that's been something that's a little bit hard for them to figure out. And then they feel like, um they feel like they're foreign students or, you know, exchange students. Yeah. They look Minnesotan. So our daughter's in Minnesota, our son's in Wisconsin. they physically blend in but their mindset and their um, even some of their values and their perspectives are very foreign and so they've both actually been drawn to the international student groups Um, our son joined the African student group Uh which he just loved being a part of and our daughter has already decided to study abroad (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah
0: yes um have they, or even you found a disconnect? So I assume you identify as Christian um, Mm -hmm. and you can correct me if that's not true. Um, And maybe they do too. Have you found a disconnect with American Christians or do you, where do you find your community within that kind of faith perspective? Because Mm -hmm. it feels like from your writing and um, you know, the little I know about you that there, it, there may be some disconnect with um, a larger Christian community in at least the United States. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we do identify as Christian. Um, I feel like one of the major disconnects, um, I was having breakfast last last time I was in the U.S. with some women from a church there, Mm -hmm. and I said something positive about Islam, and they all just kind of looked at me like, what? how can you say something positive about Islam? And I just, I hadn't even remembered, I guess, that they would not have that perspective, um, that they wouldn't recognize the call to prayer as something beautiful, mostly because they haven't experienced it and haven't had to think about it. It's not that they are intentionally being, uh, you know, mean or misunderstanding. They just haven't had to think about it like I've had to. Yeah. And so, um, definitely when it comes to relating with people of different religions and then I get sometimes to get frustrated with a lack of openness um, and a real kind of boundary system where even we are the ones deciding who's in and who's out. Yeah. Um, and then similarly with issues of wealth and poverty, um, I think sometimes there's a disconnect with the American church um, And recognizing consumerism as an issue or greed as an idol. Um, And the idea of safety and kind of that physical safety sense and just building our little castles that feel comfortable, um, whether it's with things or with, like I said, physical safety, and not recognizing those as significant issues that that need to be examined and torn down. Um, And then I was... Our experience of race here in the church is has been very different. My church in the United States is very white. Yeah. And so when we go back, we really notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, we do go to a Protestant church here. There's two official churches. One is Catholic and one is Protestant. And mostly it's foreigners who attend them. Mm-hmm. And our pastor is from Senegal. Um, the man who leads music is from Congo. The woman in charge of the um, Church board is from Madagascar. We're the mm-hmm. only American family, white family that go there. And it's, so it's a very different experience of race. And I'm so thankful. Yeah. To, um, not even just race, but different cultures. And, um, it's not, yeah, it's from all over, mostly all over Africa, but other places as well, just coming together and everyone's bringing what they have to offer. Um, We have the best potlucks. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my
0: gosh. I cannot even imagine.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. So those things have been really interesting and have affected how both myself and then our kids think about faith. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What an incredible perspective to grow up with. They Mm -hmm. are going to do amazing things in the world. They love this. Um, If someone is kind of feeling that pull, to like it sounds like your husband did <laughs> to kind of mm-hmm. go do something um make a difference somewhere help somebody out in the world what do you think they should oh think about um look at what should they consider before they step out into that purpose mm-hmm.
1: I think one common thing people often say is if you want to be of use internationally, you should yeah. look into how you can be useful locally. Uh huh. And so, you know, figure out if you really do like being an educator or uh, being a nurse, whatever it might be that you could bring mm-hmm. internationally, and then do that in your local community. Get some experience. So yeah. I feel like that that's that's valuable. I was 23 when I moved to Somalia. I didn't yeah. have any skills. Right? <laughs> I had no experience. Right? Who
0: do we know when we're 23? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, so you know, we didn't really do that. He had a master's degree, Now he has a PhD. I did have a degree in linguistics, but I wasn't um I wasn't super naturally useful at that time. But um I I would say that I'm so thankful that my husband has had these skills like so many young people want to come abroad and do something and they just don't have any skills yet um, I was parenting that was my main role so I was doing what I was supposed to do with the twins who were two, two yeah. and he was teaching which he had been trained to do and so I would really encourage people to get a useful skill
0: mm-hmm.
1: that the person you're hoping to help
0: needs mm-hmm yeah, and then make sure they actually need you or you are <laughs> yes. fulfilling a need, right?
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. When So my husband taught at the university here until I think it was 2013 or 14. Um, and when it became very clear that the university didn't need him anymore, he stepped out. Mm-hmm. And so have the skills, but then have also the humility to know, hey, I, I'm... This isn't my country. This isn't my place. I am willing to step down.
0: Yes. Yeah. The amount of humility. I think that's going to be good to pack in your bag anywhere you're going. Some humility. Yes. 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 (laughs) Um, So you have several books out in the world. Um, Is that your favorite thing that you do, by the way, writing or, or maybe not? I can't help it. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I love that. It's just in you. Yeah, even when I think, oh,
1: I need to stop. This is so frustrating or disappointing or disturbing. Uh-huh. And then the next thing I know, I'm writing about how disappointing it is. <laughs> just, just keep writing.
0: Yeah, I, I guess most writers would probably feel that way. The ones that are truly just kind of, I'm a writer. Like you just mm-hmm. identify as that. It just keeps coming. Yeah. Um, so you have some books out that I was, and maybe you have more than the ones I could find. But Welcome to Djibouti, That that's kind of like a just a guide for people mm-hmm. that are traveling or living in Djibouti, is that right? Yep, exactly. And it is—is is it truly the hottest country on Earth?
1: That's what I keep hearing. I yes. don't. Yeah, I don't think we have the highest record temperature ever, but I think on a consistent basis, it's well, it's up there in the hottest of just like day to day. Wow. Yeah. And
0: very briefly, I'm just super interested because my husband like loves hot, hot weather. <laughs> And so we live in Michigan and um, that's a, that's a problem. That's a dissonance for him um, because it's always freezing and we're we're trying really hard to have spring and going into summer here and it's just not happening for him. And he's very sad about that. Um, So he would probably dream of being in Djibouti at least for a few days to just soak up the heat. But what are the, what things, how does that affect life day to day there?
1: Uh it just means we use the air conditioner a lot. <laughs> yes, got it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very expensive. And so we only use one at a time. Yeah. And so, you know, even at night for a long time we would just shut everyone in one room. Or uh yeah, so that's that's a big factor. I'm a runner and so the heat is the biggest time I feel it is when I'm running. It's just so hard.
0: Yes. And, Do you yeah. have to run like early, early morning or late at night?
1: You know, even when I do at this time of year, so through, let's see, November through mid-April, it's pretty comfortable. It's mm-hmm. like high of 85. It, it feels pretty good. Um, but from May until September, like today it's over 100 and the heat index is about 115. Oof. Yes. And it will stay that way from all, all day, 24 hours a day, like until the, it, there's really no relief. It might go uh-huh. down. The heat index might go down to maybe 100 at night. But even if I run at 5 a.m. or at 8 p.m., it's still going to feel like 100. You know, it's, and then by August, the temperature goes up to 120 straight up temperature.
2: Oh my um, gosh.
1: And there's just not a lot of relief. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty hot. We've had, um, I had some lollipops in the bottom of my purse one day and they just, I stuck my hand in there and they were melted.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, it's the worst. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you just adjust and right. And, um, and then another book I found that you wrote, or at least compiled, edited, "Finding Home" about raising kids in like an expat situation. Is that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Raising third culture kids.
0: Yeah. Yes. 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 Um, but I want to get to the book that you are um, debuting sometime in the future. Talk about what you're working on, what you're excited about with this next book.
1: Sure. This book is coming out in October 2019. Okay. Um, it's called Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. And um, so it's a biography of a woman who, she's an Italian woman. She was an Italian woman known kind of as the Mother Teresa of Somalia. Okay. And I have been working on this book for a long time. hmm Uh, Probably since about 2012, when a friend of mine who also lived in Somalia with us, his name is Matt Erickson, um, and he's a researcher extraordinaire videographer, and he had done a short documentary for the UNHCR about this woman's life. And through his research, he just felt like, well, there's so much more here that we need to know about, and encouraged me to start digging. And once I started digging, I just fell down the tunnel of her life. Um, She had lived in the same village that we were in, in Somalia in 2003. Okay. And so she had spent up to that point 30 years in Africa working among Somali nomads who had tuberculosis, and she developed what is now used as the global treatment for TB. Um, but the reason actually that we left Somalia and ended up now in Djibouti was because she was assassinated in oh. October of 2003. Um, so her murder and then actually another couple um, a British couple was murdered a few days later uh, 10 days later um, caused our family to flee we had 30 minutes pack a bag run basically run for your life and never went back
0: oh my Um,
1: and so when you know when I just at that time life was such a tornado of oh my goodness what just happened to our home and our work and I have these toddler twins and I don't know what's going on um I just didn't have a lot of time to think about who this woman was yeah I was curious about her but didn't have access to information so then yeah 10 years later as we started to learn all these incredible things she had done why for so long Somalis loved her and still most Somalis do love her but somebody hated her yeah Uh, enough enough to kill her and so i just kind of got so curious about what had helped her to stay here for so long yeah um what had she been doing you know why was she working with tuberculosis and then why in the end did her life end this way and what did it kind of mean and how did it intersect with what i was trying to do in the horn of africa um so it's really a a biography but it's a story that's very close to my own heart and life And it's been a huge privilege to write it. I've been able to interact with her family. Um, Yeah, it's just been really an honor.
0: Oh, that's incredible. That sounds like an amazing book and um, quite a journey to go on for yourself since um, you had gone through all of the the trauma of suddenly having to move. Mm -hmm. Um, What have you learned about your journey as it does intersect with her life? What, what kind of parallels did you find?
1: Well, in some ways we're very different. She was a single yeah. woman. She had no children. She's uh-huh. Catholic, Italian. Um, and so being married and having kids really made our lives look very different. Mm-hmm. But I, i at first really wrestled because I think that we both came to Africa with similar ideas. We mm-hmm. wanted to, Serve people. We wanted to be useful. We wanted to just live out our own faith um, through loving people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then she really did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> she went know, there. She, she did. I mean, she just literally gave her entire life. She was she was taken hostage. She was beaten. She was you know she worked with this highly contagious disease. She Lived in near poverty herself. She never took salary or saved money. Um, and yet she won big, huge awards for aid and development work with the UNHCR. And she just put it all right back into the work. And, mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: she was so integrated with Somalis. Her coworkers were all Somalis. And she just loved people so well. And then, and so I was super convicted. Like, wow, I came here and I live in a pretty nice house and I use Mm -hmm. the air conditioner and uh, I have the savings account, you know? Um, And I, I just wasn't living up to kind of what I had thought would be an ideal of living abroad. And then I saw her doing this, but as I, so that was how I started kind of really comparing myself to her and falling short. Mm -hmm. But as I really dug into the research and got to know her, got to know her best friend and some of her other coworkers and I just really recognized that she would not have judged me.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um,
1: She would have said, you are doing your calling and I'm doing my calling and let's just support each other and love each other and bless each other. And, uh, and that was really freeing and even healing in some ways of like, I, I just can't compare myself to how other people are living in different parts of the world or what they're doing, but I can just, keep on doing what I feel like I'm being led to do, yeah, yeah,
0: oh, I love that every single human can learn that lesson, I think we're so quick to compare our purpose or our work or our whatever our money or anything mm-hmm. to everybody else, and kind of what a um what a not a time waster but like a energy wasting or that is you know. Yeah. To, just put our focus back on encouraging each other, like you said, and supporting each other in whatever those paths are that are different and lifting each other up. Mm -hmm. That's going to get all of us to such a better place. I love, 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 love that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you, um, are you promoting your book? Do you like, are you traveling around or speaking in other places about, um, this huge project?
1: I will be. yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to do here because yeah. the the main language spoken here is French, okay, and so if people are reading books, they're reading them in French, but i'll I'll do a little bit that I can, and then I'll be in the us uh, at least twice once the year comes out with my publisher to do some speaking and some talking, and yeah, and i I just really love talking about her life, because yeah. uh, it's so challenging, and I love encouraging people to live with courage and, and love like she did. So I hope to talk more about that.
0: And I think people sometimes, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think people hear the word courage um, as like, like you know, picking up and moving to Africa or mm-hmm. some giant step. And really, you know, it's just choosing to talk to the person that you maybe have never talked to or feeling uncomfortable, but going anyway to a gathering, a community gathering, something like that. You know, I love this idea that it's small things.
1: Yeah. You know, we took, I feel like we took one big courageous step in uh-huh. 2003 and we came to Africa, but ever since then it's been small things. Yeah. Um, it's been, sometimes it's really hard to just open the door and go outside. I don't want to. I sometimes yeah. feel my foreignness in a really scary way, yeah. even still after all these years. And so now I feel like my day to day is those is those small choices of Um, You know, talking to someone new, welcoming a new parent to school, trying a new, I don't know, activity or whatever it might be in town, going to the market alone. Um, Yeah, it becomes small things. And sometimes we might be feeling like we're supposed to take a big leap. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be that. And you never know how those small things will snowball into something bigger. Like we initially moved into this high-rise apartment in Minneapolis because it was cheap, mm-hmm. because it was close to the University of Minnesota where we were still students. Mm-hmm. And that was not, it didn't feel like a brave choice. It felt like an obvious choice. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that choice led to meeting Somali neighbors who lived in yeah. that building. And that led to, you know, the invitation of coming. Like just, you don't know, um, if you do make that courageous choice to go to the event that you feel nervous about, Um, you don't know where that will lead, you know, and every step might not feel like a huge step, but you look back and there's been some big movement.
0: Yes. Yeah. How do you take care of yourself in these, when you are kind of continually choosing the next thing that feels courageous or you're feeling kind of tired about like feeling your foreignness, like you said, or. I would just imagine that there can be some fatigue there, some kind of emotional or maybe spiritual fatigue. How do you Mm -hmm. fill yourself back up and get ready for that next thing? The next step?
1: Yeah, there's absolutely fatigue. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it feels much heavier than other times. Mm -hmm. Um, We take regular trips to the beach. We're Mm -hmm. super close to the ocean. Um, And so the snorkeling, the underwater snorkeling here is unreal. It's, it's so amazing. Uh, Um, it's uh, untouched almost because it's such a small isolated country. And so, um, it's just pristine. So that's something just being out in nature. Yeah. Um, spending time with my family and sometimes it it is just closing the door and honestly turning on the TV or reading a good book. Um, and just forgetting kind of what's outside yeah. And then there are those times of being in the United States or retreats. We just were at a retreat in Kenya where we were at a beautiful tea plantation. Um, and so again, just being in nature yeah, and being, you know, with family in the United States and kind of getting filled up again is really important.
0: Yeah. How is your, th- is sh- your youngest 13, did you say? Yes. Yes. How is your 13 year old doing, being the only kid with mom and dad.
1: Actually, uh, she goes to a boarding school in
0: Kenya. Ah, yes, okay.
1: Yeah, so that's another reason we were there in Kenya just recently was to see her. Got it. And then we went to this plantation, tea plantation. Um, So she's at a, it's an American boarding school there. When we decided to send her and when she actually wanted to go, um, there was no option for... English language, upper level education here. She'd been in the French school up until that time, but um, both her and the twins, when they reached a certain level of education, we just felt like, and they wanted to have access to more um, American, more English kind of things. And here there's a very limited availability of extracurricular opportunities. Um, And yeah, so actually our daughter just said to us this week um, that we cannot leave Africa for at least five years. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Because she wants to finish school where she's at. She just loves it so much. Oh,
0: that's got to make you feel really, really awesome as a parent that she wants to stay where she is.
1: (laughs) Yes, because it's, it's really hard for me, but knowing that it's what she loves and what's best for her, that just has to help soothe the, the loss that I feel for being
0: there. Yes, absolutely. I read your um, interview with her about her word of the year. And I'll link to it because we're going to get on to some other questions. But it was so great. I have a 13 year old daughter as well. Mm. And um, I can just hear her little voice (laughs) (laughs) speaking those answers like mom. uh." (laughs) And, And they're like brief, but deep answers. Sometimes I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are questions at the end of the interview that I ask everyone. And some of these we've kind of touched on, I think, um, but maybe you have, there's always more to say, I think about deeper connection specifically. So if people are thinking that they're missing out on people to people connection, um, how can they deepen that? How? What are some ways you think about that they can, you know, pursue that?
1: Yeah, I think intentionality is huge, curiosity, and then taking action. Um, I feel like we've gotten so used to having text or social media kind of connection that we then don't actually make a phone call, like with our mouth, talking into the phone. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I mean, that's minimum, you know, with someone who's maybe far away. But then Make a phone call and invite someone out for coffee. Invite them for a walk. Um, Like take that intentional action of getting together in person and then being curious. Once you are together, ask good questions, listen well, um, engage. And I feel like it can be – it can just be really hard to do that because, you know, you get distracted, but it's so valuable. And every time that I invite someone – just to go for a 30-minute walk around the block or mm-hmm. a quick coffee. They're so thankful. Um, and then I also feel so thankful when someone else invites me to do that. And yeah. so I just feel like do the thing, um, especially especially if you someone you know or care about is walking through a dark time. Yeah. You know, go there. You might not even know them super well, but just go there. Bring cookies you buy from the store. If you have time, make fresh cookies, but you probably don't have time. So buy the cookies, bring them by, show your face, use your voice. Um, And then obviously when people aren't even in pain, but just to connect, um, yeah, that physical presence is so powerful. And it's something I'm so thankful for that we have here.
0: Yeah. Yes. I think it's huge. I've been recently um, meeting with people that have reached out to me for various reasons and we'll just have the individual coffee. So often it's people that I don't know from a hole in the wall. We might have some acquaintances in common, um, but we'll meet and you just inevitably you're like, Oh my gosh, this is such an incredible person. That's like living out in the world and I knew nothing about them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it just brightens your day. It surely brightens the other person's day. And I agree. It's that intentionality of sitting face to face, with people, there is, there is magic to be had there. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Um, so if someone saw your list of titles or maybe kind of a bio of your backstory in your particular case, what do you think are some assumptions that they might be getting wrong or what are they missing that is kind of between the lines of mom, writer, expat, you know,
2: those Mm -hmm. kinds of things.
0: I feel like in your case, this could be a list a million miles long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so many things. Um, but I think one thing people can miss when they look maybe at almost any expat myself specifically is loneliness. Yes. Um, I think it could look like my life is exciting. Uh Um, and Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. And there's a, the expat life has a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. People come and go a lot, um, which is why I'm so thankful for my Djiboutian community because they are not coming and going as often. Mm -hmm. But um, for example, this year, all of our teaching staff are moving on and next year we're getting all new teachers at our school. Wow. And so, yeah, that means just, it's just a lot of relational turnover. So it's saying goodbye and then forcing myself to be open to new friendships again. And, and I find myself at sometimes being really tempted to just shut down. I yeah. don't have energy to make a new friend. Inevitably, I end up liking the person who comes. And yeah. so, you know, we'll have a friendship again. But even that is short term, one year, two years. Um, and so we can go deep pretty fast. Expats do, but we also have kind of a sort of an underlying loneliness because we're never quite belonging. We're never quite
2: home. Yeah, even when
1: we're, we're in the U S or even when we're here, um, we're just a little bit outside. It's so, yeah, there's a, I do feel that a lot, just an undergirding sense of loneliness that people would probably miss.
0: Yes. Oh, I, yeah, that wouldn't, would not have occurred to me. And I appreciate you saying that because I think, um, A lot of us do know people that live kind of similar lives, maybe like, you know, military families or, Mm. um, or uh, expat people, um, or just relatives living abroad, that kind of thing. And I don't know that that would be my first thought at all. I really appreciate you saying that. Mm. Um, What would be this is off another little tangent, but what would be if someone knows someone that is living in a situation like yours or something similar? What do you just love receiving, um, not like necessarily a thing, but how, how do people best connect with you or reach out to you?
1: One thing specifically that I just immediately think of that I've been so thankful for is that we have a couple of friends in the United States who have been very intentional to keep my family in front of their kids' mm-hmm. um, radar screen. So, I think of one family in particular who lives just a few blocks from my parents, which is mm-hmm. where we go back when we return to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And they have kids that roughly match up in age with my kids. And so that family, the parents have taken really the intentionality of making sure that when we're back, our kids connect. And when we're away, they just talk about our family among with their kids. And so it feels like we're there. You yeah. know? So the kids have, my kids have had the same friends for all these years, even though we've lived apart. Yeah. And that's been such a gift because they don't feel then so foreign or they'll go to an event and they'll have that one friend that yeah. they know. And also um, that family and a few other families have been very consistent in with my kids. Again, when we come back to the U S they'll just say, Hey, here's, here's a cute shirt that I got for you. That's kind of in fashion right now. Yeah. Or, you know, here's the movie that's out that we're all going to. So they, they just make a point of initiating um, the cultural stuff that my kids might feel overwhelmed by. That's been a huge gift.
0: Oh, I love that. Yes. Um, what sort of spaces or people make you feel the most seen for who you are? So you not just one piece of you. What spaces can you kind of integrate all your parts and your roles and feel really seen and heard?
1: I think I, I really feel comfortable with other expats. Yeah, um, other people who just kind of get it. They, they will just tell the funniest stories about packing the perfect fifty-pound suitcase. Yeah, or you know the, the language and cultural faux pas that we all make. And uh, so there are people that they get those surface funny things. Yeah, and they really get that deep the deeper things that are, like I said, the loneliness or that feeling of never quite feeling at home and wondering if you're ever going to have a home again um, and yet feeling so fulfilled in your life. So there's these, um, yeah, funny circumstances that we can just really laugh about with any expat. And then there's the deeper things that where you can start to be really vulnerable and open. And so I do feel like that's a, a safe place for me. Yeah, I love that.
0: So the last question is favorite things. What are you just loving? They can be little, they can be big, they can be serious, they can be funny. What are you loving right now?
1: Um, Yesterday I was out running Mm -hmm. and all I could think about for the last mile was watermelon (laughs) (laughs) slushy. And so I got home, I, I freeze, I cut up watermelon and I freeze little cubes. And then I blend it with some not frozen and it turns into the most magical, like sweet, cold, totally fresh, only watermelon magic in my mouth that cools me off when I come
0: back. I love that. Yes. I can imagine that would sound amazing when you're running in a hundred and billion degree heat.
1: Yeah. It's just like all I can think. My feet get so sweaty that I squish in my shoes, like my... My shoes are squishy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all I can think with every step is watermelon slushy, watermelon slushy. <laughs> that is something that I really am excited about. <laughs> I mean, very light and uh, and easy, but I love it.
0: Awesome. That just sounds delicious. I think people complicate their, like, smoothie slushy game over here way too much. Just some, <laughs> like frozen watermelon, people. Come on. That sounds That's amazing. It. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anything we missed that you wanted to put out into the universe today? I
1: don't think so. You asked really great questions. I I loved thinking about these things.
0: Well, thank you. I feel so grateful that you found somehow found my little podcast in the world and reached (laughs) out to me. Um, I just feel like you are totally my people and that you're doing amazing things and your perspective on the world is incredible. And I'm just so grateful that I got to spend a little space and time with you. Thank
1: you so much. I have really enjoyed it too.
0: Wasn't that wonderful? Oh my gosh. I'm going to tell you that since we recorded, which has been several months now, um, I of course have started following Rachel and all the social media things, and I just cherish her social media posts and her writing. And just today or yesterday, she posted yet another piece of wisdom and experience um, related to sexual harassment and assault and every single time I see a new post or thought from Rachel, I know that I'll think about that writing all day. She is such an encouragement to keep seeking the other, to stay curious, to remember that the world is huge, that there is so much more that exists beyond us, and that we, you know, to use kind of an overused phrase, that we contain multitudes. I think her perspective is so rich with nuance and complexity, partly because she has that gorgeous writer brain that thinks in nuance and complexity, but also because she's lived it. She's lived in and among and through so much. Also, since we recorded, Rachel has shared that her thyroid cancer has returned, so she sometimes speaks to living with cancer in her writings as well. So if that is your experience, that particular part of her writing may really resonate with you or someone you love. I know Rachel would love your prayers, and maybe even more than that, she would love for us to all be curious about each other, to care for each other well, and honor each other, as I know she encourages in all of her writing. So please go sign up for her newsletter, pre-order her new book, Stronger Than Death, and keep taking the middle seat. I know you will find perspective shifts, connection, and compassion right there.